starting shortly. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday, 20th of October 2020. Mark Penders in the States and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Looking around global financial markets, it's probably fair to say that central banks have made a pretty good job of keeping liquidity flowing and avoiding the sort of credit crunches and volatility spikes that we saw during the global financial crisis. True, the massive and ongoing injection of funds may be storing up problems for the future, but on the whole, monetary policymakers must be at least cautiously content with recent developments. However, a well-oiled financial system can only do so much in terms of bolstering economic growth. And while the markets may be behaving themselves, economic activity is already showing signs of struggling as it tries to recover from the effects of COVID-19. So it's quite interesting then to hear that the IMF now believes that most advanced economies that can borrow freely don't need to plan for austerity to bolster their public sector finances after the virus pandemic is finally over. This is a term from the advice it offered a decade ago when it called on governments to cut back on spending or raise taxes to bring deficits under control. So Mark, we've recently heard what the US budget deficit had over three trillion in a fiscal year that's just ended. Are yeah. you remotely concerned or is the IMF right? We don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> uh, well, I guess... Um uh, we're, you know, we're we're borrowing for right now because of the uh, massive impact. And well, you know, um, ask questions later. Um, certainly, you know, um, the world is swimming in debt. If the whole world is, uh, and uh, um, how that plays out is, of course, a complete unknown. And um, and whether it will be inflationary, which it doesn't seem, of course, right now to be there, hardly any evidence at all of inflation. Uh, you did a, a German PPI report where you said um, that there is a floor, maybe building in what is still, you know, uh, perhaps a, a negative position, at least for the mm-hmm. PPI, the German PPI. So I think that that's probably a. Uh, a, a uh, a, a right assessment of where inflation is right now and, and perhaps um, it won't be going any lower but whether or not it'll it'll spike is um, is another question and it's an interesting you know uh, how currencies work um, whether or not there will be any um, uh, devaluations or um, any uh, comparative troubles with the different uh, currencies and how digital currencies may play into this is something that will all unfold, I guess, over what, you know, the forecast horizons for um, at least the Federal Reserve, you know, 2023, we'll see. Uh, and there's really no, you know, there's hardly any sign at all of any expectation of any life uh in inflation, uh, maybe some you know rosy scenarios that will be approaching two percent, um, and uh, but you know right now we're about one half percent in the U.S. roughly, and um, uh, so that's not a lot of inflation building. But if they can do this, if if, the, if um, central banks can borrow and print money, or if uh, governments can borrow and central banks can print money at the pace that they have and it proves not to be inflationary well that would be um a surprise i guess they would have to reverse course um 
sometime along. And what what exactly? So is the IFM is saying that they don't have to reverse course sooner than later, or yeah, I think I think the attitude has changed. And I suppose it comes down to you know, what they're calling modern monetary theory these days, whereby so long as sufficient debt is held domestically, then essentially the government's got it under control. And you don't have to really worry about too many things. The problem, of course, becomes if a lot of the debt is held externally. Um, and in that case, you really need to maintain overseas confidence or you could get a major run on the currency. But I think it's a combination of, say, a shift towards perhaps say uh, this, this modern monetary theory approach together with, um, I suspect, the idea, well, look, when you've got interest rates as low as they are now, uh, you know, you really should be filling your proverbial boots with them because you're almost being paid to hold debt rather than actually you know, having to repay it and having to be. So it's an excellent time, really, to actually borrow as far along the curve as you possibly can do. Um, but essentially, you mentioned the currencies in there. And I don't know if you, you noticed it today, but there's an interesting piece which came out from the ECB, um, not not ECB policy by any means, but from their um, their their economists. And they come out doing some uh, calculations suggesting that or underlining, I suppose, uh, the importance of quantitative easing or relative quantitative easing on the currency markets. Because I think for a lot of people who perhaps you know don't have much faith in you know, does quantitative easing really do anything in the first place, and there's this big question mark over what precisely are the various transmission mechanisms. Well, if you read this ECB staff paper, they're saying if you look at the performance of a uh, euro dollar. Um, euro, so the euro versus US dollar uh, during the course of the pandemic so far from March to September, then a euro appreciated well, roughly speaking 10% against the dollar. And they're attributing six percentage points of that, so over half of the appreciation to the effect quantitative program outpace that of the ECB. So what they're effectively saying is that you know, the currency markets do respond very much to what's happening in terms of quantitative easing. And more importantly from that, perhaps, you know, who's, who's introducing more quantitative easing than anybody else? Now, obviously, with a, you know, what the Fed's doing at the moment compared to the ECB, which by ECB standards is very aggressive, it's certainly not as aggressive as the Fed. And they're suggesting you know, that's one of the principal reasons why we've seen the dollar losing ground against the euro or you know, the other way around, the euro gaining against the dollar. Hmm. So interesting stuff. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing, so just going back to the fiscal side and say this IMF, which uh, we touched on briefly last week. One fact which always struck me, which stood out from the global financial crisis and looking at how the global economy recovered from that crisis. And yeah, fair enough. It's a, it's a totally different crisis this time around. But the US at that stage uh, reflated fiscally substantially more than we saw coming out of the likes of Europe. And if we believe the latest set of IMF forecast and you know, to give any forecasters credit, it's pretty, pretty difficult to get hard of all the various packages going through at the moment. But again, they're suggesting that uh, the fiscal stimulus coming out of the United States is going to be significantly more than we see in the euro area. So although there's been a lot of people talking the dollar down, you wonder if this actually may be the case that leads, that leads the dollar to appreciate. Just to stick a couple of numbers in here. So this is looking at the structural deficit in the states as a percent of GDP. So effectively, you know, the underlying deficit. Um, now, the IMF estimate for 2020 and this came out, I think it's, I think it's last week, so it may or may not include all the latest packages, et cetera, et cetera. But they're talking about an increase from 6.8% of GDP in 2019 to some 15%, one 5% this year. 
Um, this compares with the eurozone, which had a structural deficit to GDP of just 0.6% um, in 2019. And they see that increasing to just 5.3%. So in terms of the actual you know, stimulus being provided on your side of the ocean versus what's coming out of Europe, um, you know, the US recovery, one would anticipate purely on the back of this to be significantly stronger. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I guess it does. Uh, there's one, <clears throat> one factor, though, um, and that's the expectations factor or um, a subjective factor um, that is that may be a, at play here when you break down these numbers and you're talking about more QE equals six per, percentage points. That's a very uh, precise uh, uh, level. But um, uh, it, it could also uh, reflect um, you know, general concern or, or a, a, a general easing of concern um, on the uh, pandemic global effects, uh, which would uh, perhaps uh, lower a demand for the dollar. So um, that could, I think, uh, be one Im uh, one important part. Also, you know, uh, how is the COVID affecting um, I, uh, Europe? It seems to be uh, a much bigger issue than it is here it's a big issue here in the u.s don't get me wrong but um it seems to be uh, we have less lockdowns we have higher infection rates um and uh and maybe that will uh, it will be another you know a fewer lockdowns uh, may may help the u.s economy relative uh, uh to europe but um uh, so like I'm, so like I see that Wales is in some kind of a, a, a near a return to a, a total lockdown. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean you're right. I think certainly on uh, the COVID side is getting well, it's, it's getting almost total press at the moment as far as Europe's concerned. Obviously you've got little matter of a, a presidential um, election around the corner as well to talk about. But over here it is. It's very much seeing what's become uh, an escalating trend in the COVID numbers. You mentioned Wales to intents and purposes has gone into lockdown, at least is about to go into lockdown. Um, Ireland has come out today and introduced uh, a six-week lockdown, which will be starting, I think, at the back end of this week. We've had yet more measures or restrictive measures, not in terms of total lockdown by any means, but more restrictions out of France, Spain, uh, Germany, which, of course, was widely regarded as being one of those countries who performed best during the pandemic. Um, pretty well right across Europe at the moment, we've got additional lockdowns coming in. And it's important as we talked about in the past um, not just from a health point of view but you know, in terms of what it's going to do to the economy and I think what we're starting to see over here now is that some of the forecasts of anything remotely like a v-shaped recovery are rapidly being eroded out and the concerns are that fourth quarter GDP may actually turn out to be pretty weak um, and with that in mind I think just looking to this week's figures it's going to be an important period for some of these so-called soft surveys. Now, obviously, we're not going to have a lot of hard October data yet, or indeed even hard September data, as far as Europe's concerned. But we will be getting you know, surveys on consumer sentiment from uh, the GFK guys on Thursday. Uh, we'll also be getting the, the Eurozone flash consumer sentiment um, index um, coming up shortly as well. We'll have a uh, business sentiment coming out of the likes of Ancy in France. And of course, all the flash PMIs on Friday as well. And I think given we've had this sharp pickup in COVID cases over here over the course of the last two weeks or so, there's going to be you know, almost disproportionate interest in what these um, particular surveys now are saying about what's happening to business activity and consumer activity as guys try to start to 
work out right you know what is the position in terms of the overall recovery um so have you got much coming out your side on that on that sort of um, effect well uh, 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 we do have the uh, pmi flash um on friday along with the rest uh, along with um uh, france uh, germany uh, in the uk uh and I think the general assessment is, um, at least for the U.S., is uh, firm, uh, uh, nothing uh, appalling. <laughs> Last week, we had a very uh, strong retail sales report, shockingly really strong in September. I, I, and I guess that I think that probably implies that there is a shifting from um, services where people are not spending their money, of course, and, and going ahead and buying more goods, which is um, what you know, which is good for retailers. Uh, but you know, industrial production uh, was soft, and it's still trying to. Um, so the supply side of the economy is still trying to dig out uh, of its hole. And, and um, sure how much of a gap, how much is, of a gap is there left now? If you're looking at the IP number mm-hmm. between you know, where well, we stand now versus the you know the pre-lockdown stuff. Okay, well let me see here. Let me get my Econo Day. Uh, I had that up a second ago. Let me see here. Well, we had housing starts and permits here, but let me look at last week's. I'm just uh, zipping around my calendar here. Okay, so me, in terms of Europe, we're still running about 10% behind. Some, but you know, short, I should say, something like that. I can give you the exact number. That's a, a roughly what I would say it is off the top of my head, but I have the numbers right here. Um, Okay. Uh, okay. So total production in the U.S. is down 7.1 percent from from February, with the manufacturing output down 6.4 percent, and that's in contrast to um, uh, sales. So that's goods production, the general overall goods production. That also includes um, goods for export, um, where demand has been very weak. But um, for the domestic consumption of goods. Um, we have been up. Uh, we were 5.4, uh, 5.4 percent um, higher on the year. Uh, uh, higher on the year. So I'm not quite sure what that. But it, we've been up four straight um, months over the February level. So um, so it, we're doing very well on the on the goods side, the consumption of the goods. And uh, we're still struggling on the um, production of the goods now. But let's turn to how we just had the housing starts and permits number. And, and this is uh, something for policymakers. I think that there is a risk here of a unsustainable bubble emerging in the uh, housing sector. Uh, it has just been on fire. And um, and it's concentrated in new home sales, uh, which are up. Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 I don't know what the latest the latest number is on that, but because uh, that'll be coming out um, uh, next week. But uh, on the permit side, um, uh, they are they were up 5.2 percent in um, the month of September, with um, uh, single family homes uh, up uh, up seven point uh, up seven twelve point six percent. Permits for single-family homes are up 12.6%. So that's home builders who the day before, yesterday, Monday, uh, continue to report, you know, uh, uh, by far the highest uh, uh, sentiment and the highest um, levels of uh, current sales and future sales and traffic in 35 years of of data for the uh, home market index. Within that, one, I mean, we got a sort of the same pattern over here, um, although... 
it's, it's, it's not as strong a recovery in the housing market as you have your side. But particularly in the UK, something which has been very apparent is a sort of a geographical almost redistribution of purchasing in the sense that, you know, since we've had the, the, the pandemic, there's been this gradual migration out of the more densely populated areas into the less populated areas. Is that the same sort of thing we're seeing on your side? I haven't seen um, – that's the anecdotal – those are the a- anecdotal reports. Um, the data I've been looking at haven't been broken down by metropolitan areas uh, versus uh, non-metropolitan areas. Um, that may be uh, uh, at play, and that would, um, you know, that would make sense. Uh, and there does seem to be, uh, if not that factor – that would increase uh, demand for uh, uh, home sales, but also that um, higher wage earners are being less affected by the unemployment situation. All right. So that could be, but I think fundamentally it's the low interest rates. Um, so, and they are historically low and they are feeding, uh, and this is direct, you know, uh, this has nothing to do with demographics or COVID or anything like this is monetary policy that is moving these and, and the buying of mortgage backed securities at a fierce rate here in the U S that's also helping the, uh, keep rates down. So, um, uh, and how long can this go on? And certainly there's going to be a, uh, this, these are unsustainable gains for the residential sector, resi- uh, and, um, uh, sooner or later, the home, uh, you know, permits are exceeding uh, starts. Even though starts have now uh, are beginning to emerge above the February level levels, uh, um, uh, uh, permits are are far higher still. Well, and but starts are on their way. So um, how long can this go on? Uh, is uh, I guess uh, as you know, a central question that I think the Federal Reserve here has uh, dodged this issue. Um, and they're going to have to face it and they're going to have to explain it. And um, and so they have, you know, the minutes of their of their meetings, you know, they, they mention it a little bit, but their descriptions are still very contained. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't think that that's fair anymore. I think that there is, a, um, a, you know, a bubble issue that is going on. And if we, we talk about the global financial crisis 12 years ago, that was a, another monetary or it was uh, it was. Um, you know, a subprime uh, mortgage uh, um, uh, ex- uh, it led to an explosion of uh, housing activity that we've never even matched uh, yet. Although we 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 will soon match it in mm. in sales and and building if if at this pace if it continues. And what makes this stand out so much right now is it's uh, how exceptional it is compared to other elements of the economy, and. Um, so uh, it's it's obviously something that is of uh, major importance. And if you recall, 12 years ago, um, uh, in the U.S. at least, uh, you know, home prices went down 20, 25 percent, and that was all part of this great catastrophe. And will something like that happen? Are we building another bubble, um, uh, monetary um, policy? Um, um, a based bubble in the housing market, and if so, that could be a very dangerous thing uh, for the recovery when we finally get begin to get out of this. Fair point. 
All right. Well, talking of dangerous things, we had um, an EU leaders meeting last week, um, which was supposed to be talking or in theory, perhaps coming out with some fresh insight and progress on this much touted trade deal with the United Kingdom. So, well, the meeting came and went without any real signs of progress, um, which meant if Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, was to be believed. The UK should have walked away since he'd set October the 15th, which was last Thursday, as being his self-imposed deadline for there to be some real progress on these actual talks. Now, the UK contingent, although they didn't actually attend the meeting, of course, because they're not part of the EU anymore, but they made it obvious they were none too happy what came out of that particular meeting. But they haven't pulled the plug completely. And indeed, it looks as if uh, further talks will be continuing today. So we'll really have to see what happens. But although it's got to be says the pound has been sold off uh, since the back end of last week, it hit particularly hard. So it does still seem to be the case that investors believe that there will be some kind of deal reached at some point, uh, rather than we all just ending up with no deal at all and uh, both sides being hit badly economically come the beginning of next year. Um, I think you know, in terms of where we go for here, well, really, it's anybody's guess to how long these talks might or might not go on for. But I guess the the absolute bottom line is something like November the 15, 15th, which has been put forward as just about the latest possible day for agreeing a deal if it's going to be ratified by all the various parliaments involved in this. And of course, that process, process takes a long time. But in any event, uh, whether or not they're going to get a deal or not is, you know, remains to be seen. It probably means that sterling and potentially UK financial markets in general will remain volatile, perhaps amongst the most volatile of markets over the course of the next several days. Um, it's got to be said, I suppose, looking where the pound is at the moment, uh, if we were to see something which came out now and suggests that, well, that's it, the talks have finished, there will be no deal between the two sides um, come, the, uh, come the end of this year, then you've got to expect to see the pound being hit quite heavily. You'd also see, presumably, a fairly sharp run into uh, gilt-edged stocks, so yields coming down. And also, of course, it's going to increase the likelihood that uh, Bank of England will have to uh, cut interest rates or at least ease policy again. Now, we do have another meeting from the Bank of England on November the 5th. Um, so we may by then know perhaps whether or not there's going to be a deal. But already from uh, the comments which have been coming out from uh, MPC members, it looks as if there's going to be some kind of ease taking place there anyway. It's quite clear that the bank is very concerned about the outlook for the economy, in particular the labour market. And they believe that the current unemployment numbers uh, are too optimistic. They think the actual unemployment figures are going to be a lot higher. Um, so it looks as if we'll probably get at least some additional quantitative easing coming out of that meeting. And indeed, of course, I think as we talked about last week, there's this ongoing review at the moment about uh, what negative interest rates would mean for the financial sector over here. So there's at least, I think, an outside chance we could even see base rate or bank rate, I should say, being cut again. Before then, and in the same vein, we'll get the, uh, an ECB meeting. That's due uh, on Thursday week, so Thursday of next week. There's also talk we could even see an interest rate cut there. I still think that's pretty unlikely because it seems that uh, most of the council members seem to think that interest rates have pretty well reached their lower bound now. But there's certainly going to be speculation about possible additional quantitative easing there. And I think from the way the economy looks like it's starting to slow now, we'll either see some form of easing coming out um, at that meeting, or perhaps more likely, because in December they'll get the updated economic forecast, you know, we'll see some something come in then. So if you believe what these ECB um, 
economists were saying and that quantitative easing leads to a weaker currency, then it could be that if we don't see any additional quantitative easing or change in the pace of quantitative easing out of the Federal Reserve, that um, the dollar might be in for some perhaps some kind of a lift because we could well be seeing some additional action coming out of both the Bank of England and the ECB over the course of the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay, what else have we got? Um, I suppose I should quickly stick with on this Brexit thing. I mentioned it, although it's not clear quite what's going to come out of this yet. Um, folks may remember that uh, Boris Johnson tried to put through this thing called the Internal Markets Bill, which uh, undermined various parts of the Brexit withdrawal agreement, which was signed to allow us to leave the European Union at the back end of last year. There's now efforts apparently in Parliament to actually change or amend some of this bill to make it more palatable to the EU side. Um, Were that to happen, then certainly would help to boost the chances of actually getting some kind of trade bill. Um, That uh, particular bill itself, I think, is under discussion in the House of Lords at the moment. So it's going to be probably toing and throwing between the House of Commons and the Lords over the next few days. But what comes out of that could, again, have uh, quite important implications for what's going to happen as far as UK markets are concerned. Um, anything else we should mention, um, I suppose quickly out of Canada, so there's a difference at the moment between how the financial markets are behaving, which by and large is all quite nicely, thank you very much, and the real economy which aren't doing so well. Well, a further reflection of the fact that financial market pressures are, are easing generally. Last week, the Bank of Canada was on Thursday, said it will be discontinuing three of its COVID support, support programs, and that's simply uh, due to improving market conditions. We've already seen various measures coming out of the likes of the B of E, indeed the reductions in the swap lines between the, the Fed and various other central banks suggesting that financial markets are doing OK. So I suppose the bottom line to all this little lot is that, well, the central banks are doing their bit time for the fiscal policymakers, or at least some fiscal policymakers to do rather more. Um, end up on, I suppose, a slightly more upbeat note. If you're trying to find an economy which is doing well, or at least relatively well at the moment, I suppose you can pick on China. We had their third quarter GDP numbers, which showed uh, an annual increase in total output of 4.9%. Now, it's a little bit weaker than expected, but up from 3.2% in the second quarter. So in line with you know a, a fairly decent and respectable turnaround in the Chinese economy um, post-COVID. And indeed, the old overall COVID situation out there seems to be um, a good deal better than most other parts of the world at the moment. And also within that third quarter data, importantly, we had accelerating growth coming out of both industrial production and retail sales as well. So China could well be one of the places to invest in over the course of the next few months and certainly from the strength of the local currency it looks as if um, investors are returning to that part of the world already well you know a question i have is um i don't have let me hang on let me try to get the chinese um the imports numbers Uh, trade wasn't part of what they issued on monday but uh is china going to be um buy i know that they're buying of course um um, U.S. agricultural goods, um, but are they supporting um, the, you know, their um, export or their their trading partners? Uh, I think is going to be a, a critical question. I, I I I see that they're I pulled these numbers up. So their imports in August, uh, the latest data that I have in my sheet was down 2.1 percent. Uh, on the year uh, compared to a year ago versus a 9.5% rise in exports. So um, 
their economy, you, uh, you know, are they going to share the wealth here? Are they going well, to increase their well, own? I think, sorry, sorry, interrupting, but I've got just looking at our calendar. We actually we got the uh, September numbers there. Um, imports on the year in September were up 13.2 percent. Exports up 9.9 percent. So I think, you know, putting a straight, I mean, Clearly, with these you know, unadjusted numbers, uh, the rates can move about quite a lot between months. But the signs are, I think, we put a straight line through it, is that, you know, growth of Chinese domestic demand is, well, or should be starting to filter through, to, as you say, to their main trading partners. So I think for the rest of the world, really, it's a good thing that China is doing what it's doing and hopefully will continue to accelerate to boost, you know, the exports coming out of uh, out of the rest of the other main trading main trading nations. Um, so yes, I mean it was a you know a strong balance or strong surplus out of China, but actually mm-hmm. a good deal less than expected, simply because the the import side of it was uh, was so strong. Okay, there you go. That was data released on Tuesday. I see here. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, right. Anything else from your side? Well, it's I think it's a quiet week here. I don't think that there's any expectations. Uh, can we for, have the for, Mark Pen- can we have, well from from our side? Um, can we have the Mark Pender call on the U.S. presidential election in two sentences, please? <laughs> uh, it's well, I you know I I would say the the polls are are not to be um, relied upon, and uh, it will it's probably still up in the air. I know that there's a lot of um, pre-voting over here and um, but uh, how, how that plays out uh, I think that the election is still uh, probably up for grabs um, and uh, if there is a Trump victory um, I think the impact will be uh, limited uh, for two reasons one that um, uh, he may not be pulling in uh, Congress and two he will be an immediate lame duck so um, I, I think that that will, I think, limit uh, the impact uh, at the economic impact. Uh, but uh, that w- it's, I think, it's still playing out, and it certainly has polarized. It's ever, ever more polarization over here. And uh, so, <laughs> how you know, I think, you know, markets are unpredictable. And uh, but I, you know, my kind of hunch is that the markets will show uh, less polarity than um, uh, public opinion. Okay, watch this space, as they say. Thanks for that. And that then is it for this week. To end on a happy note, I guess it seems that both Donald Trump and Joe Biden will have their microphones muted during parts of Thursday's final debate. So for those interested in what they're saying, at least they might actually be able to hear something this time. On behalf of Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. And whatever the politicians might say, remember, you can always keep up to date with the key market moving data and events in Econoday's global economic calendar. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.